turn to Acts chapter 14. That's where we're going to be studying today. Uh, and ironically, this is probably never going to happen in my life again, so I'm just going to say it. Uh, this is where my mom is traveling today. She's in Turkey. Yeah. So we are in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas are in Iconium, which is in modern-day Turkey, which is where my mom is this morning. This is weird. It's a strange, strange thing. Anyway, we, as human beings, we are on this never-ending quest for uh, the truth. I don't know if that's something that resonates with you. It certainly does with me. Uh, I think we're all trying to figure out what is real, what is true. Uh, you know, the Bible says that, uh, what is that line in, in 1 Corinthians 13? You know, God does not rejoice in wrongdoing. He rejoices in the truth, right? Um, I was brought up and schooled in the public school system in the scientific method where you make some observations, you form a hypothesis, you perform some experiments and try to test and see whether your uh, hypothesis was true or whether it was not true and you need to formulate a new hypothesis. And in that way, repeated often enough, the idea is that we can reach the truth. Well, here's the problem. I don't know if you've observed this or not, but here's the problem. There's a bunch of sinners running around this world, and we're not all operating in good faith. When I was a college student at Purdue University, we, uh, uh, not because I was smart, but because I was available, I got to um, work on some research over one summer, and Again, not, not me not being a smart guy, me just being the guy that knew how to put piping and stuff together in such a way to build a test apparatus and then run the tests for the professor. And uh, that tests, the, the, the test apparatus, and we ran tests and we produced data. And um, the data gave us some very clear indications about what we were trying to figure out, how, how our hypothesis was standing up to the scrutiny that we were placing it under. And uh, I was always amazed that the professor had a way of seeing things in the data that I didn't see to please the, the, the organization that was funding his research. Um, we're all sinners. We're not all acting in good faith. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were? Wouldn't it be wonderful if in our world today, in the United States of America, that we, we, we could recognize that there are problems that we face as human beings, and that in a good faith effort, we could all get together and we could try to figure out how to boat best tackle these issues. But that's not the world we live in. The world we live in is that there's people that make money if that issue is tackled this way. And there's people that make money if that issue is tackled a different way. And so each one of them present the truth in a different way. Or should I say it the way that our society says it today? They present their truth, which is an oxymoronic statement. Amen? There's no such thing as my truth. There's just the truth. In our text today, Paul and Barnabas, after having kind of a miserable, a miserable um, go at their last location, are now in Turkey. They're at a town called Iconium. And they're following their typical missionary strategy. So hopefully, and that's why I've named the sermon today, the pattern of the battle, right? We're seeing a pattern emerge. Paul and Barnabas are going to go into a town. They're going to go into the synagogue. They're going to start sharing there. There's going to be mixed results. Some people in the town are going to love it. Some people in the town are ready to run them out on a rail. And that's exactly what we're going to see today. But there's some things about this text that are very helpful. For any of you that think that we're living in a particularly bad, particularly evil time in human existence or whatever, let me assure you, the book of Ecclesiastes is true. There's nothing new under the sun. And you're going to see that in our text this morning, uh, I think in a very vivid way, because the text this morning uh, describes a lot of the things that we're seeing in our culture today. So there's a pattern emerging here, and we're going we're gonna to witness that pattern on display in Iconium. So the big question today is this. In the battle for the human heart, we talked about that a few weeks ago, 
What typical pattern emerges when trying to reach people with the good news of Jesus Christ? So here we go. First thing that we see in the text is found in verse 1, it's initial acceptance. Here we go. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Who's the they? Paul and Barnabas. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks, that's non-Jewish, otherwise known as Gentiles, uh, Jews and Greeks believed. Again, Paul and Barnabas come into town. They employ their typical strategy of going into the synagogues first. Why is that? Probably many reasons. They're Jewish themselves. So going in, they would probably get an automatic uh, open door at the Jewish club, you know, the synagogue in town. Um, and probably, well, the, the assumption would be that these are already God-fearing men and women. And so they, they've already got a leg up on everybody else who maybe is, believes in a plurality of gods if they're Greek, you know. And so they start there and they're going to work their way outward. And so... Um, that's where they went. Now, uh, why did they go to the synagogue first? Well, yesterday, it's my understanding, in the United States of America, was football, college football game day, right? And I don't know too many of y'all who want to enjoy a college football game at the Walmart electronics department. Did anybody go, just to prove me wrong, did anybody spend their day yesterday watching the game in the Walmart electronics department? Nobody. Okay. I'm guessing many of you spent your your the football portion of your day uh, at um, home in your uh, couch, you know, on your couch with your TV on, or uh, perhaps at Buffalo Wild Wings or some, some such place like that that's set up for that purpose, right? The synagogue is a place that is set up for the purpose of sharing thoughts and ideas about theological things, about God things. So that's where they went. That's the right place to go. Now, let me just say this. The word, as, as is often the case in our culture today, the word Christianity means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Let's just admit that's true. We have a specific understanding of what the Christian faith is in our brain, but um, uh, we may not be, uh, we're not the same as other people. So <clears throat> if what you mean by Christianity is that God loves everybody. It uh, doesn't matter what you do, who you are, you know, it uh, doesn't matter uh, what actions you take. There's no such thing as right and wrong. Everybody just hold hands and get around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. If that's what you mean by Christianity, that version of Christianity can be accepted by almost anybody, right? Everybody can buy into that. Here's an undeniable reality of our life. When a loved one passes away, and uh, if I have the opportunity to uh, minister to that family, and let's say that that's a family from outside of our church, outside of, uh, you know, really not really church-going folks at all, I've never met a family that, that has ever said, our loved one is in the bad place. It's never happened. Family members will often say things like this. Uncle Bob, well, Uncle Bob is now fishing up there with the man upstairs. He's fishing, have, probably catching the biggest bass he's ever caught in his life. And exaggerating even that, you know. They'll say things like that. So if what a person means by following Jesus is that, that everyone gets along and does whatever they want, we all get to go to heaven when we die, then following Jesus can look good to the masses. Following Jesus can gain wide acceptance. But if we read God's word, and we read things like, you know, everyone who, everybody who wants to follow me, come after me, must take up his cross daily and follow me. If we read about the fact that this breaking away of sin and following of Jesus that we're doing is going to be a difficult and challenging process, that God loves us so much that he rescued us from our sin and no longer wants us to live in it any longer. We're never going to do it perfectly, but we are going to do it increasingly. That message is not as popular with the masses. Can I just say that? It's not as popular. 
But when you first, when you first get to know when you first are told about the Christian faith, you're first told that you're a sinner and that Jesus came to die on the cross for your sins. It can be very, it can be somewhat confusing and disorienting, and you could walk away from that initial experience, going, saying to yourself, "Oh, this is great! I'll just pray this prayer, and I'll go to heaven when I die." And I assure you, that's a misunderstanding of the Bible. The rich young ruler kind of experienced this, right? The rich young ruler asked Jesus, "What do I need to do to be saved?" He said keep the Ten Commandments, all this stuff. He says, I've been doing that since I was a kid. Wonderful, good news. And Jesus said, sell everything that you have and give to the poor, then you'll have treasure in heaven. And the rich young ruler went, now, is that a command, a universal command? No, it's probably, Jesus said that this particular guy struggles with placing his faith in his wealth, and he's he needs to break himself. He needs to, you know, be broken of that. And so it'd be a good idea for him to sell what he has and come follow Jesus. And he was not willing to do that. Anyway, this is the pattern. There's initial acceptance. Why? Why was there initial acceptance? Well, I thought of a couple different possibilities. Possibility number one is that there was a group of people in Iconium that had heard through the grapevine about Jesus of Nazareth and how he had died on the cross for their sins, and they were looking into it. They were wondering out loud. They were speaking to their friends, who's this Jesus guy? And so when Paul and Barnabas come with eyewitness accounts of what happened, they were ready and were ready to follow Jesus. They were like the Ethiopian eunuch, right? He, he went and celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem. He bought himself a copy of Isaiah. He was trying to, he was seeking God, right? He was seeking him. And when Philip ministered to him, he was ready to accept him and be baptized. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that, that people were just swept up in the enthusiasm of these men coming into town telling this good news, but perhaps had not yet reached the conclusion of Luke 14, 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So there's initial acceptance. Okay, let's stop the sermon. Stop the sermon. Programming note. I'm going to spend the bulk of my time on point two, uh, and don't think that I'm going to that we're going to be here till one or two o'clock. Just relax. Points three and four are very quick. But chapter fourteen, Acts chapter fourteen, verse two is absolutely valuable for our lives on this planet today, because the next thing that we see is delayed opposition. Delayed opposition. Look at verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Folks, the Bible is practical. Let me show you how this morning. The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. There was delayed opposition. Look who by first. The text is very clear. The text is very clear that the, the, the people that were stirring up the problems... It all began with the unbelieving Jews. People that had the look and feel of religion, but were not following in the clear teachings of the Word of God. Some translations say disobedient Jews. Some tra your translation may say something else. But this is where it started. If you look back at church history, I'm talking about Christian church history. If you look back at Christian church history, you will not see a whole big united group of people that are just diligently seeking God through his word and trying as hard as they can, working in good faith together to try to come together in unity so that we can publish the gospel of Jesus Christ to the unbelieving world. You will not find that as part of our history. You will find division, schism. You will find, uh, you will find people within the church who want to edit out sections of this wonderful book that we've been given and toss them aside in the name of what they want or what's culturally acceptable at the time. And those folks spring up from within the church and within denominations. They, they learn how to work the levers of power. And, and when they get themselves in positions of power and learn how to work those levers, they, they typically breed division. In our very own town, in our very own hometown, there's, there's a, a denomination. You probably know it. It's a large denomination. Uh, and I think there are four such churches in this town, two of which, and they're in the middle of a, of a schism, a, a split. 
And two of the churches are going one way, and two of the churches are going a different way. When the sad reality of the life that we live today, and if you don't, if you don't feel the weight of this sorrow, I don't know what I can tell you this morning to make you feel it or to help you feel it, but just try to experience this with me in this moment. That in the day and age that we live in, in the United States of America in 2022, if you walk up to, if you are an unbeliever and you walk up to five different Christians, self-proclaimed Christians on the street, and ask them a simple Bible question, you're apt to get five completely different answers. When on a, and I'm talking about on a matter where the, matter where the scripture is clear. Something like, should I tell a little white lie not to hurt someone's feelings? You might get five different answers on that. People who are religious, I would argue, people who are religious, who do not attempt to seek God by understanding and applying his word are some of the most dangerous people in our world, I would argue. Please don't be that person. Read your Bible. Study your Bible. Seek to do the Lord's will, not your will. Don't try to argue away what God has clearly taught in favor of what you think is better. It's highly destructive. This is where the problems began. And as you're going to see, this is going to turn violent pretty quick. James had something to say about folks like this. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I know there are parts of the Bible that we struggle with. Male leadership in the church is a thing in the Bible. I I. I don't know how it could be clearer. And yet, churches like ours are becoming socially more awkward because we don't have lady pastors or lady elders. And we don't do that simply out of fidelity to God's word. And there are many other such things that are becoming more and more culturally unacceptable that we adhere to because God has clearly spoken and we trust him over our own understanding. Well, this then, the, it started with the disobedient religious folks, and it spread to the wider people groups. It spread to the wider people groups. It says in the verse, it says, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, that's non-Jewish folks, and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So, you know, you can imagine, you've got these disobedient Jews, and they're saying, that's not what God has said. God has said this. That's not what God has said. God has said that. These guys are stirring up problems. They're making up all kinds of things. I don't know where they get this idea, and that that idea started to percolate and matriculate out into the public, out into the, to the non-Jewish community. <clears throat> I, uh, I, don't, I don't want to take the time uh, this morning. I, I did it in the first service, and I kind of went over. But Jude, uh, Jude only has one chapter, uh, verses 3 to 16. I would commend that to your reading this afternoon as you reflect on this message um, there's a group of folks always present within the church that are trying to stir this kind of stuff up. They pose as Christians. They pose as religious figures. They pose as followers and followers of God who fear him and try to operate their lives according to his will. And yet the things that come out of their mouths, the messages that they teach are different. They're not God's word. And so they are not to be trusted. Now, on this, uh, on this next point, uh, I want to dwell on, for just a moment, on this phrase, right? The unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds. That word has, carries the idea of poison their minds. Poison has the idea of causing someone to believe something that's not true. Helping someone to believe something that's not true. Poison their minds against the brothers. And I want to dwell on this for a minute. And in fact, I've made up a sheet that I've printed some out. I put them on the Welcome Center. I've also put it on, right before I went to first service, I posted it on Facebook 
the church Facebook page that you can download and print out for yourself. Because, I've, again, we think that we're living in a bra- this new world. But the idea, the idea that there's a group of people out there that are poisoning people's minds is not new. It's been going on, and it's going on in Iconium. Back when Paul and Barnabas, the church is, the, the church is just getting off the ground, and uh, it's happening there too. So I, I wanted to give you some ways in which our minds can be poisoned and describe those to you. And again, it's more descriptive on the sheet that I, that I put out there. So let me, just, let me just talk about this for just a few minutes. Again, this is the longest point of the message. One way to poison the mind is to say this, anonymous sources, anonymous sources say. Now you think, well, this sounds like you're talking about the news, the, the news media. No, 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 no. Let me tell you the church version of anonymous sources. Pastor, this is the way I feel. And let me tell you, there's a whole bunch of other people in the congregation that feel the same way. Well, who? I can't tell you that. Now, I just got to tell you, in order for me to maintain any kind of spiritual health, when, I, when, when somebody tells me that, I have to assume that it's zero people. You know why I have to assume that? Because the Bible says that if you have something against your brother, you're supposed to go tell them that to their face, right? You're supposed to go, like, I'm not a, 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 I and the other elders, I don't believe that we are unapproachable men. If you have something, even a harsh criticism of the church, direction that it's going, you can come tell me, and I'm not going to hit you. I'm not even going to curse at you. I'm going to say, thank you for sharing me. I'm glad that you told me the way that you feel about this, right? And so, uh, and so, um, but if you are, if you are operating your life in such a way that you're not, you've got something against me, the pastor, or some, some one of the elders, or the whole group of us for that matter, and you were to not come to even us and say, well, many other people feel the same way, but you were to take that information and go and tell your friend and then say to your friend, yeah, I feel this way and a whole bunch of other people in the church feel this way too. You understand that that creates an idea in that person's head that there's a good chunk of the church that's against the direction that the leadership is going. It, it can be mind poison. And so my encouragement to you is that we all pursue unity by pursuing the way of, of Christ and, and try to, the best that we can, um, not to avoid doing this stuff. And if, if somebody comes to you and says, well, I don't really like that either. You're right. I don't like that either. Well, then say, well, then go talk to Pat. If, if several of us go, maybe we can get something done here. And, you know, and, uh, but just go talk to him directly. Talk to one of the elders directly. There's other ways, too. There's something called the wrap-up smear. And this is, this is you might not think this applies to the church either, but I assure you that it does. Here's how it goes. Uh, the wrap-up smear is when you have something against a church or a leader or something like that, and, and instead of going to them, you report it to a media source. Now, if you don't think that there's uh, media sources out there that cover church affairs, you're sadly mistaken. There's all kinds of them. There's Christianity Today. There's Pulpit and Pen. There's all kinds of podcasts uh, out there that cover what's going on in the church today. And I have listened to some of these podcasts where they have reported on things with no corroborating evidence whatsoever um, and without going to the pastor or the church leadership that, that they're reporting on in the name of building an audience and making clicks and making money. Okay, so, so that happens. Somebody reports, uh, you know, Pastor Scott is a dirtbag, and let me tell you all the ways why he's a dirtbag. And then uh, somebody says, well, I don't think Pastor Scott's a dirtbag. And th- this is what you do. You say, well, that, that media source says they are, so it must be true. You see? You reported it to the media source. They reported it to the public. And then when somebody questions it, you say, it must be true because they wouldn't publish. They wouldn't publish things that aren't true. It's a kind of a circular argument. Folks, don't automatically accept a media report alone as evidence. Now, sometimes they got the smoking gun. They've got the evidence, and that's fine. But be careful. Uh, this is my, one of my favorites. I saw it, but you can't. I saw it, but you can't. Now, the, here's the church version of I saw it, and you can't. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to play a role right now. I'm going to do a little acting. I know I'm not very good at it. But uh, let's just pretend right now that I'm a different pastor. Brothers and sisters, 
the Lord gave me a vision. And in that vision, he told me that I would need a Lamborghini for the Lord. And he was going to provide that for me. And it's going to be red. It's going to be candy apple red. I know they don't make them in candy apple red. But it's going to be custom paint job just for me. That's what the Lord told me. And so he has told me that this church, that you, the good people of Delaware Bible Church, are going to supply me with that Lamborghini so that I might do the Lord's work at great haste. Amen. So open up your pocketbooks, open up your, open up your bank statements, and, and give, 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 because the Lord told me that I'm going to have this car within a week. Now listen. Okay, so then you come to me after the, the, the message. You go, how do you know? How do you know? And I say, the Lord told me. I'm anointed. I've got this special ability, this special knowledge. Now, that, that seems kind of outlandish. But here's the, here's the other version of that that's more subtle. Now, I'm, I'm playing myself again, okay? Just, just to be clear here. <laughs> you know, folks, this, this, would be a, this would be the more subtle version of I, I saw it, but you can't. You know, folks, I've been studying my Bible for a lot longer than you have in Greek and Hebrew. And I have access to commentary that you don't have access to. And I'm telling you that this means this. When in plain language and plain writing, it doesn't mean that at all. So, you have to, when you encounter someone that gives you the I saw it, but you cannot mind poison, you have to ask yourself the question, when God wrote in Peter that he's, he's given us everything that we need for life and godliness, that you have to understand that, that the word of God is clear and it's, it, you know, the word of God, the spirit of God, the people of God working, these, these gifts that God's given us is everything that we need. We don't need special revelation from one anointed person with no verification. And I cannot believe how often the wider church falls for this nonsense. You hear stories about it all the time. Some of these, I'm going to go quick now because I think there's 11 of these. Using technology to hide opposing narrative on social media. Uh, this doesn't happen with us so much, but, but I, t I will tell you this. There is this idea of there are, there are folks that call themselves Christians that are more conservative in, in our understanding of God's word. We take the word of God, the Bible, at its word, what it says clearly. And there's folks that call themselves Christians that kind of ignore good chunks of the Bible and say, we know better because a good God wouldn't do what this book says, which is foolishness. And uh, when those churches promote their views out on social media, those can get a lot of airtime and a lot of amplification on social media because it lines up perfectly with what the, social, with what the, the culture today wants. But views like ours are much less popular, and they can be throttled on social media. And so my admonition to you is don't get your news from social media. I know that I've talked to several people in my age group that say, you know, I like Twitter because it's a really good source of news. Uh, I, can get the, I can get the update, the briefing on what's going on in, in life very quickly. No, you can't. You get the version of life that Twitter wants you to see. That's what you get. So be careful. Laundry list persuasion. This is a good one. So uh, let, let's say that we have an elder on our board, uh, and this is a fictitious elder. This is not a real elder, but let's call him Elder Lou. Okay, we've got Elder Lou on our board. And uh, Elder Lou has not done anything sinful, illegal, or immoral, but you don't like Elder Lou, right? And so you start saying a whole list of things that Elder Lou is doing or has done that that kind of like sound bad in the Christian bubble that we live in. So you might say things like this. Do you know Elder Lou never wears a tie to church? Never. Never. Do you know Elder Lou reads out of the NIV? <laughs> Do you know Elder Lou went to the movies last weekend in public. You see, you, you put 20 of those things together and people can go, I, I think, you can start to poison people's mind and think, well, Elder Lou's not really showing any much discernment in this life. Maybe he's a bad elder. When you, when you take any one of those things, it's like, there's nothing to see here. But this happens often, and it can poison the minds 
of what is going on. Sometimes when people start giving me a list like this, I say, stop, stop, stop. Give me the number one thing that you think this person is doing wrong and what disqualifies them from whatever you think they're doing. And let's talk about that. And, you know, when the number one thing is, you know, they parked in the wrong parking spot last Sunday, we move on, right? Uh, lies by omission. This happens a lot in the Christian world. Uh, Here's a, here's a very typical way that a lie, lies by omission happens. There's been, there's been a pattern over the last 10 years or, or longer that I've noticed where pastors, prominent pastors, big-name pastors, names that you would recognize, they get themselves in trouble in their local church and they're ousted. But they're not ousted. They're, they're taken out of public ministry and they're given a very gracious, uh, graciously, they're given by the elders uh, what's called a... Um, a program of um, restoration. You know, okay, we're going to take you through a restoration process, and if you'll work through this restoration process, maybe someday you can, we can restore you back into ministry again. And so, you know, it, that restoration process usually involves time, it involves accountability, and it involves, you know, doing some work to, to improve upon some deficiencies that they have in their ministry. They might have a short temper, right? They may have not been very careful with money. You know, you get the idea. And so, again, I think that's all appropriate and good for, for a church leadership to, to take a man out of ministry for a time and to help him through a restoration process. That's very biblical. But the guy doesn't like it. His name has gotten too big for his position. And so the pattern that I've seen is this guy then goes to some sort of a Christian media source and says, you know, I didn't do anything wrong and I'm being abused by my church. I'm being abused. They're smearing my name. And this move that they took to remove me from office, they had no right to do that. And so my wife and I, we've prayed about it, and the Lord revealed to us that it's time for us to go. And so they leave, and they go take a ministry at another church, start to, to build a ministry there. Meantime, the church that they're leaving looks like, in the eyes of the world, it looks like a garbage church that abused their pastor, when that's not what happened at all. It was his actions that caused the problem. And their biblical attitude towards his actions to try to help him by removing him from office and giving him a plan of restoration. What did he do? He lied by omission. He told the media everything that he did. He told the media everything that the church did, but he failed to say anything about the actions that got them there in the first place. And can I just say, I, I feel this pressure too. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to say something very honestly. If... if, if um, if a prominent news outlet, a prominent like worldly news outlet, or even a Christian news outlet came to me and asked me to give my side of a story, I'd feel very leery about that because I worry about lies of omission. What are you going to put in the story and leave out of the story that's going to make me look the way you want me to look and not the way that I really am? All right. Some of these are pretty obvious. I'm just going to blitz through them. Chopping up video to hide context, manipulate quotes. Sometimes you see people take um, uh, quotes out of context and present them as if, you know, uh, here's, a, here's a, well, um, yeah, you know what that is. Uh, somebody will take a sermon clip out of context and put it out there and say, see, Pastor Scott said when, if you look at the wider context, it was the exact opposite of what I said. Uh, verse 8, uh, sourcing someone familiar with so-and-so's thinking. This is one of my favorite. Okay, so I want to set up a scenario for you and, and just try to track with me here. I'm going to use fictional characters to protect the innocent. Let's say we have a pastor on our staff, and we'll, we'll call him Pastor John. We have no such pastor. Let me be clear, there is no Pastor John on our staff. But at an elder meeting one night, we're having a discussion, a deep, in-depth discussion about children's ministry at Delaware Bible Church, and uh, we're just getting the conversation started, and Pastor John chimes in and says, you know what, well, I think would fix children's ministry here at Delaware Bible Church, that if we reinstated corporal punishment, spanking, right there in class by the Sunday school teacher, ha, 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 he says it with a smile on his face, everyone knows it was a joke in that context, everyone laughs it off, and we move on with the serious business. I don't think we ever had corporal punishment here, but um, I, I don't know. Anyway, months later, one of the other elders gets angry with Pastor John about something gets very irritated with him, very, very irritated with him, and goes and reports to the church, Pastor John wants to spank your kids in children's ministry. I heard him say it at an elder meeting. 
He wants all the teachers to be able to spank your kids in the children's, in the children's ministry. He's a monster. We've got to get rid of him right now. I know. I was there. I was there when he said it. It's out of context. It's mind reading. Don't trust it. All right. Misleading headlines that are contradicted after the first three paragraphs. How many times have you read a clickbait article uh, on a Christian website about so-and-so pastor, and then you read three paragraphs down, and it's like, wait a minute, the data that's in this article contradicts the headline. That happens all the time because people need to get clicks. They need to get attention. So they, they say outlandish things to get you to click on it. Uh, burying the narrative contradicting facts at the very end, that's very related to number nine. Uh, and then number 11 is the last one, and this one happens a lot in the world that we live in. It's called The Truth Emerges But Too Late. Here's the description. You got somebody in the church that's uh, you got somebody in the church that's uh, maybe a, a really a remarkable Sunday school teacher, been doing it for many years, and some allegations are brought against that Sunday school teacher for something completely inappropriate. And so you say we're going to launch an investigation. Now let's just pretend the person making the allegations completely made it up, just fabricated it from whole cloth. There's no truth to it. So you know. The elders get together and we question everybody and maybe we even bring in an outside group and they question everybody that's ever had contact with this person and it, we can't find any data to support it, but it takes us four months to get through it. So we come back to you, the church, and we say, uh, you know that thing about Sunday school teacher Bob? It's all that we can't find one shred of evidence to corroborate anything that was said. And so here's the actions that we've, we've chosen to take. By that time... Bob's reputation is, is shot, and it's very, very difficult to rebuild it. Folks, uh, this deal, this deal that we uh, engage in of not being careful just to say the truth, to speak the truth, to make sure that uh, everything that's coming out of our mouths, everything that we're sharing with other people is as close to reality as we can possibly muster, being clear when we're unsure about particular details is critical to our Christian walk and to keeping unity within the church. Rich Mullins, we just celebrated Rich Mullins. As, he was a Christian singer. He's, we just passed his 25-year death anniversary. He, he died in a car accident, tragically, when I was uh, a younger man. But I used to listen to his music, and I went to a few of his concerts, and and I really was struck by his testimony. But he wrote these words in a song. And uh, I think that it, again, I hope that you can feel the weight of these words as it pertains to this point. He, said, he wrote this, well, it took the hand of God Almighty to part the waters of the sea. But it only took one little lie to separate you and me. And then the tagline is, we're not as strong as we think we are. Um, the unbelieving Jews in Iconium were not interested in coming to Paul and Barnabas and having a good faith conversation. They were not interested in saying, Paul and Barnabas, you guys apparently were eyewitnesses to this whole Jesus thing. Uh, you guys were there when it happened around the Jerusalem area, especially Barnabas. Uh, you guys were there. Uh, this, is, this is our understanding. We're going to give you our two best scholars, and, and we're going to talk about our best understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. Let's reason from the Old Testament scriptures, because Paul and Barnabas had a really good argument from the Old Testament scriptures that they would share with people in the synagogues. Let's have an, a reasoned discussion, and let's see if these things are true. Come, let us reason together. Let's see if these things are true. That's not what they did. They instead said to themselves, we've got to get these guys out of here because they're disrupting the entire manner of our lives. And so we're going to fabricate. We're going to make up. We're going to pontificate. We're going to poison the minds of the people in this town and get them out of here. That's exactly the human condition. But it doesn't need to be that way in the church amongst those that follow Christ Jesus said this to, to the religious leaders who thought this way. You are of your father, the devil, and you, your will is to do the father's desires or your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. When you lay your head down on the pillow at night, folks, let me ask you, just ask you, what's the better thought to have in that head of yours? One, I've heard some bad things about this person, and so they must be doing the, the devil's work. Urgh, I don't like them. Is it better to hold that in your head, or is it better to hold this in your head? You know, I've heard some things about that person, but I really haven't seen any corroborating evidence. I don't know what's going on. I haven't spoken to them personally. Um, everything I've seen from their testimony and what they've written and what they've said seems to align perfectly with the Scripture. I'm thinking somebody's trying to smear them. I'm going to think that way until I, hear something, until I see something otherwise. I think that what we're seeing in this whole poisoning of the mind thing is, is really the difference between us being unified as a church and us letting Satan let Delaware Bible Church be his playground. All right. Again, I, as I promised, these last two points will go quickly. We see that, Jesus, uh, that Paul and Barnabas had success among those who were seeking Jesus. Look at verse 3. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. What do we see in this text? That they're able to speak boldly. They're able to tell the truth, not just that Jesus came and died on the cross to pay the penalty of their sins, but that they need, that they need to turn away from their sins and follow Jesus and walk in the newness of life according to his teachings, according to his word that they were sharing with him. And they were sacrificing to share this, right? Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Why on earth are Paul and Barnabas getting out of their homes, getting out of, off of their easy chairs, and traveling to treacherous parts of the world, the people that don't necessarily all want to see them, and sharing the good news? Because these sacrifices are pleasing to God. God is bearing witness among them, right? He's we're going to see later that he's going to allow them to do signs and wonders. But how is God able to allow these guys to do signs and wonders? It's because they showed up. They showed up for good reason, to spread the gospel. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Who is in heaven. Paul and Barnabas are there to say, not us, not us, him. Not us, him. Let me direct you to him. Let's talk about his word and let me tell you about him and what he's done for you. God, they showed up and God is doing the work. It's, it's an amazing thing, relationship that we're in here with the Lord. We show up faithfully and he does the work, right? And then we see signs and wonders, uh, signs and wonders. Again, this is in the time period of life before the Bible, sorry, the New Testament is written. It's not been written yet. And so how can God validate Paul and Barnabas as his true messengers? Well, he does it through signs and wonders. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The people in Iconium who were seeking Jesus could find that these men were true based on not just what they said, but the wonders and signs they were able to perform before them as the Bible had not yet been completed. But, and this is, so typical of the pattern we're going to see for the rest of the book of Acts. Expulsion from among those who reject Jesus. This propaganda campaign, the poisoning of the minds, it's having its full effect. The people that are choosing to buy into that stuff are getting upset. Verses 4 to 7 says, But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both both Jews and Gentiles, with their rulers, to mistreat and to stone them, who's the them, Paul and Barnabas, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Laos, I can't ever pronounce this word, Lycaonia, I probably butchered it, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. They come in, they preach the gospel in the synagogues, people are going, yeah! Jesus is great. Oh, wait. I got to turn away from my sin? Oh, wait. I'm going to suffer for Jesus' name? 
these guys are a bunch of shysters. Well, they're not even, they're not even true believing Jews. What, what are we doing here? Get these guys out of here. You hear what happened to them in the last town? They ran them out of that town on a rail. You hear what happened on Cyprus? Well, let me tell you. And then there was division. And it wasn't just negative thoughts, folks. They were planning to take action, to mistreat them, and to stone them. It wasn't just negative thoughts. They were, they were picking up, you know, it's one thing to think bad about somebody. It's another thing to pick up rocks to throw at them until they stop moving. James 4 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire, you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There is a group on this planet who does not seem to get that Jesus did not save us from our sins to let us go and live a sinful lifestyle. They don't seem to understand that in sacrificing of their time and their treasure to serve their fellow man, they're actually living exactly the way God wants them to live and, and is glorifying his name and is doing things that are healthy for they, they themselves in the process. They don't get it. And so when they come into contact with that, they want to reject it. They want to fight and quarrel. Why? Because their passions are at war within them. This is what Jesus says he's offering me, but I don't want that. I want what I want. And I'll even use scripture to justify what I want and twist scripture to justify what I want. And then it's war because then I'm going to stand on the high ground and say, God told me, or I, this is the way I read the scripture and you're wrong. And, ah. and they had to flee. Uh, and I think the best understanding is that the distance they went was 20 miles, which is nothing for us today. But apparently back then that was enough to get out of the, the realm of danger that they were facing by the unbelieving crowd in Iconium. Reminds me of Jesus when he was ministering on the earth. He had a similar situation happen to him. It says in Luke, when they heard these things that Jesus was saying, right? All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. There's always seems to be this part in the book of Acts where the, the apostles are kind of living Jesus' life again. Have you noticed that? Anyway, what's the answer to the question today? What's the pattern that emerges? Well, the pattern that emerges in the battle for the human heart is initial acceptance of the good news, but followed by a mixed result. As a re mixed results as a result of a propaganda campaign. They poisoned the minds. It's not just something that's happening today, folks. It is happening today, but it's something that's been happening ever since the church got off the ground. So what can we do about it? Well, here's a few things. Number one, you can memorize and practice 1 Corinthians 1.10. What is 1 Corinthians 1.10, you might ask? Well, that's a good question. Here it is. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. What's that mean? Does that mean we all have to think exactly the same? I believe the answer is no, we don't. We do have to agree on what the Bible says we must agree on. We also have to agree when the Bible leaves room for preference, that those are preference items and not items that we have to do a certain way. And as long as we can agree that we're going to pursue Christ together by pursuing him through his word and doing the best we can to understand it together, and that we're going to leave room for the possibility that our particular interpretation of Scripture might be wrong, we're going to be okay. We're not going to allow Satan an entry into this church to divide this people by spreading poison 
mind poison and propaganda among us. But be careful, Delaware Bible Church, to put 1 Corinthians 1.10 into practice. If you have a problem with something I'm doing, something one of the elders are doing, you have a problem with something somebody in the church is doing, be wise, go to them, have the conversation. Work it out. If you need help, that's why we're here. That's why I'm here, to help, help you guys understand what the Bible says and hopefully live as somewhat of an example of that. So let's put this into practice and not let the devil have his playground here. Second, uh, take that sheet that I produced and, and practice identifying propaganda and looking into God's word to discover truth. I, I decided to put this to the test. I hopped on a certain news website, very popular, probably the third biggest news website. And I, I scrolled down and I found a story about Christianity. Oh, great. That's a story about, it was a story on, maybe you saw it, it was yesterday. It was a story on uh, the fear of the rapture. How there's people out there that are just like hunkered, Christians that are out there hunkered under their beds, biting their nails, fearful of the rapture. I've never met one of those folks. I would like, to, I, I'm in a pretty conservative church. I'd like to meet one, but I, I don't know. Nobody's call, none of you have called me yet and say, hey, dad is under the bed. Because he's convinced any minute the rapture's coming. It was, it was filled with propaganda. That's all I got to say. And then finally, uh, remember, there's two different peop people groups in Iconium, right? There was the people that were seeking him, seeking Christ, and the people that were rejecting Christ. So let me ask you this. Are you seeking him? I, you are never going to learn. I don't know anybody in this church who is an older man or woman who's been reading the Bible for decades, who has reported to me, who you know, knocked on my door in my office one day and came in and said, you know what? I'm done. Bible study complete. I got it all figured out. I've not met that person. So if that's true, if that's true, then making Bible reading and study and meditation and prayer a daily part of your routine is absolutely critical to your spiritual development. Just like eating and sleeping. Make it part of your, uh, your activity to seek after Jesus. And then, I would argue, when the propaganda shows its ugly head, you'll say, I know that's not true. I know that's not true. Because I know my Bible. Father, thank you for this time that you've given us to get together and study your word. Thank you for the practicality of it, how it's so... Uh, we think we're living in new and different days, but we're really living in the same days we've, that Paul and Barnabas lived in back in, in Iconium. And so, Father, let that be an encouragement to us that, that others have gone before us and they've lived through similar things. And if they can do it, and if you are a God who is sovereign and, and has given us indeed everything that we need for life and godliness, we can do it too. Not on our own, but within the fellowship of believers studying and meditating upon your word, looking to you in prayer, being empowered and convicted by your Holy Spirit, who has taken up residence in our lives through the finished work of Jesus the Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.